Our Father, indeed, we are a people who understand that our, that our knowledge of Thee is so limited and, and is so small. And we gather on a Sunday morning, not so much because we have developed a nice Sunday morning habit, but we've gathered because we do indeed want to know You more. We understand that to know You better is life eternal. And, and we understand, Father, that as we live in a world that is so full of error and lie, that the only place that we can find words of truth and words of life is from you. And so we've come, not because we've gathered to listen to the, to the exposition of a, of a man. We've, we've come because we want to know the Lord and all of his beauty better. And so might the Holy Spirit of God descend upon us in a fresh way. Might the Holy Spirit of God not only descend upon the pulpit, but descend upon the pew. Might we all as a people discover something fresh, something something sovereign, something glorious about you today. Our Father, we are in a world that could, in the next 20 minutes break out in a nuclear holocaust. We are in a world where 150 million people could be killed if two nations cannot settle some differences. We are in a world where people hate each other with such vehemence that they would take airplanes and dive them into two tall buildings. We're in a world where wives will turn on their husbands and husbands will turn on their wives and children get hurt, and families get destroyed, and nobody cares. Oh, God, we need words of life. We need to hear something that is, that is so richly true in the context of so many lies, oh, God. We have an enemy that loves to lie to us. We've come to the God who loves to tell us the truth. And so, Father, we pray for the man who will try to represent truth. He has his own sin to deal with. We pray that you will hide him so that we can hear that which is the clarion voice of the thrice holy God. Accept our gifts, Father. Use them. There's so much to do with them. There are hungry people to feed. There are widows in Ukraine that will die unless we give them food. There are people in the inner city of Memphis who will never hear the name of Jesus unless people from this church head down there. And I pray, O oh God, that you will cause us to be sacrificial in our giving, knowing that there's not a dime that we'll ever take into eternity. And the best way to use it now is to not to buy another gadget. It is to invest in the expansion of the kingdom of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Grab your Bibles, if you will, and open them to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 9. Some of you may recall that uh, one of the things that I like to do in the summer is set aside our, 
our current uh, series and, and do something that's kind of a contained, because so many of you are gone so much in the summer, I like to do something that's a little bit different uh, in the summer so that you don't uh, miss out on several chapters of the book of Acts. So uh, we begin that this morning. In fact, um, I hope you got your update in the mail yesterday. Uh, if you, I got mine in the mail, um, and I wrote you a little letter on the front page of the June update. By the way, if you are not on our mailing list and you would like to be and don't get this, we send them out monthly. It's just a newsletter for Gracie Van. Um, put your name on one of those cards and give it to me. We'll be, we'd love to send you one. But um, if you got this yesterday and read it, I introduced what I'm about to do um, right here. I'm not going to read you all this. I'll read you some of it. But uh, I'll tell you what let's do first. Let's, uh, let's read the text. Let's look at Acts chapter 9, and then, then I'll explain further. Acts chapter 9, beginning at verse 13. For some of you, uh, let me just give you the context real quickly. This is uh, the, the story of the conversion of Saul, who, of course, became Paul and wrote uh, one-third of the New Testament. But um, this is right in the middle of his blindness experience. Uh, before he has received his sight, before his sight has returned, um, Ananias is coming to see him and who will, and, uh, as a result of his visit, receive his sight. That is, Paul will, or Saul will. But let me, be, let me read you just four verses, beginning at verse 13. Then Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard m- from many about this man, how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, that would be Ananias, Go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. For I will show him how many things he must suffer. For my name's sake, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. What I did, what I wrote you here in case, and by the way, if you, if you don't read the update, there's some great articles in here, particularly the one that Bruce Meyer writes. Uh, actually, uh, you have to have an IQ of above 190 to uh, understand what Bruce writes, but um, if you do, which I'm sure all of you do, uh, there's a couple of great articles, one from the staff, one from Bruce Meyer every month. It's just excellent reading. But what I wrote is, is for those of you with IQs under 106, which um, include most of us. But um, it has to do with what I want to do in the summertime. Uh, I call it my best shot at making summertime enjoyable or nine or ten lessons from the book of Job. Um, What I've said to you here is that um, much of the book of Job, I don't understand. Right in here. And um, this is not going to be a series or a a book study on Job. If I understood what the book of Job said, I would probably try to study it with you. But um, I don't understand much of it, but I do understand some of it. And the little bit that I do understand, I want to offer you... Uh, in hopes that it will improve your enjoyment of the summer. And um, uh, I, there's about nine lessons, <coughs> pardon me, that I have kind of uh, sifted out of these 42 chapters of the book of Job. And as you all know already, that um, the book of Job is a 42-chapter a, a discussion of pain and suffering. 
And so my nine or ten uh, lessons will be on that subject. But hopefully, from a vantage point, that will, that will help. I hope it will help. I hope it will give you a, a real spring in your step as you uh, wrestle with things that you never knew that you were going to have to wrestle with. You know, um, gang, I'm not looking for your sympathy. I promise I'm not looking for your sympathy. But in my privileged position, and I do consider it a privileged position to be in the gospel ministry, I get a chance to hear a lot of your aches and pains that people don't get to hear. Just recently, my wife walked in. We had been out together at a church function, and she walked in and she said, If I have to listen to one more story of pain... I don't know what I'll do. And um, we don't consider that a burden. We consider that a privilege. But uh, having heard all that, it just seems that it's incumbent upon me to try and help you work through it all. So that's what we're going to do. That's what we're going to do for the summertime. Today is really not so much a lesson on the subject of um, suffering or pain as it is an introduction It's kind of an introduction to the whole series, uh, kind of an effort on my part to get us off on the right foot. Uh, Because um, we we need to rethink our whole point of departure. Our whole starting point needs to be rethought, at least in my opinion, because I'm convinced that when it comes to this subject, we bring two very misguided under, or maybe call them mistaken expectations, false expectations. I, I don't know what you want to call them. But there are two places, two assumptions that really skew the whole subject. And, and I want to I start this morning by addressing those. Let, let me mention the two, first of all. The, 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 the two false expectations, we'll call them. First of all, ladies and gentlemen, every one of us have a goal for an, an undisturbed idyllic life. We just can't help ourselves. We can't stop not wanting to be happy. And so when difficulty arises, it's somewhat of a surprise. It's almost as if this is some sort of alien that wasn't supposed to happen. Because our our real goal in life is to get through it undisturbed. That's my first. My, my second false expectation has to do with, with what we assume is God's role. We're convinced that if, that if we as the Christian uh, get our parts right, if we do what we're supposed to do, then God is going to come through for us. And, and God's part is to relieve us from all of these pesky little woes and troubles that so plague us. Now, those are two things, ladies and gentlemen, that I'm convinced need to be corrected in terms of our thinking. It's, it's the, the word that we use in our house. I don't know whether you use this word. Maybe we made this one up. But it's, it's thinking that's whopper-jawed. It's, it's skewed. It's twisted. It's, it's bent in a way that, that really harms us. When it comes down to facing things that we really didn't want to face in the first place, but secondly, come as, come as a real shock to our system. So I want to address 
those two things this morning, and then we'll jump into nine lessons from the book of Job, really about the only parts that I understand. We'll start that next week. Um, so, first of all, this, this false expectation that life, the, the life that I want is one that is idyllic and undisturbed and is full of nothing but one uh, happy event after the other. Let's do that one first. I want to read you something that um, I really, I found it in Leadership Magazine. But uh, what I'm reading you is, is they're real. I mean, this is not, nobody made these up. These were six suggestions that were found in a suggestion box uh, by the United States Forestry Service, Service. And they were suggestions that were actual comments from backpackers uh, after wilderness camping trips. Now, these are the truth, ladies and gentlemen. These are six suggestions that came from backpackers that were given to the Forestry Service about backpacking. Here's suggestion number one. Um, Trails need to be reconstructed. Please avoid building trails that go uphill. Number two, too many bugs and spiders. Please spray the area to get rid of these pests. Um, number three, th- these really came in, ladies and gentlemen. These, these really were written. Chairlifts are needed so we can get to the, be- for the, the chairlifts are needed so we can get to the wonderful views without having to hike them. Here's my favorite. A McDonald's would be nice at Trailhead. <laughs> How about this one? Too many rocks in the mountains. <laughs> what did they expect to find? Styrofoam? Um, and finally, the coyotes made too much noise last night and kept me awake. Please eradicate these annoying animals. <laughs> you know, I have a sneaky suspicion that all of those suggestions were written by Christian hikers. Um, they write me things, but these aren't real. But this is, this is kind of consistent, but these actually didn't get written. Uh, Dear Dr. Young, please give us a quick, easy, effective formula for prayer. Dear Dr. Young, could you please explain mystery simply? Dear Dr. Young, could you take the risk and the work out of obedience? Dear Dr. Young, please remove all pain and disappointment. Gang, those didn't get written, but they do reflect a a kind of a a mindset that, that we just can't seem to help. That is... We can't help not wanting to be happy and being happy all the time. Now, as compared to that, I want you to look at our text. I I want you to look at what is said to Paul. Because the language is quite remarkable, ladies and gentlemen. um, It's more remarkable than I think you might have seen as I read it the first time. I want you to notice what Jesus doesn't say to Paul. He doesn't say... And Paul will suffer much for my name. 
as though suffering were some kind of unfortunate, uh, perhaps avoidable byproduct of Paul's life. And he alone is singly uh, an exception and will have this experience like nobody else ever will. That Paul, I'm going to make an exception out of and he is going to have to suffer a lot for me. No, ladies and gentlemen, that's not what it says. It says, I will show him how many things he must suffer. Gang, the suffering is a necessity. He must suffer. It is an integral part of why Christ has taken hold of Paul and, and central, absolutely central, to Christ's intent for him. I will show him how much he must suffer. Christ has taken hold of Paul for two reasons. First of all, he's going to bear a message for me. And secondly, he's going to suffer for that message. The, the, the carrying of the message and the suffering, ladies and gentlemen... You couldn't separate those two things. Suffering is a part of a holy must. Something that Jesus intends to show not only Paul, but you and me as well. You remember the story that we're still talking about Paul, but you remember the story in in 2 Corinthians 12 where Paul has got some kind of physical afflictions. I, I don't know what it is. It's a... He calls it a thorn in the flesh. And um, he prays three times. He prays three times that God will remove his thorn in the flesh. And do you remember the answer that he gets all three times? No. 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 And there's no, there's no suggestion in that text whatsoever that no is an inferior answer to yes. You know, listen, have you ever read Paul's resume? You remember he was uh, being uh, assaulted as not being a, a, a worthy um, apostle? Well, let me read you his resume. It's found in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. I, you, you can find it if you like, but I'm going to read verses 23 through 25. This is Paul's resume in answer to all of his critics. He says... Uh, he says, first of all, I speak as a fool, but in labors more abundant, in stripes above measure, in prisons more frequently, in deaths often. From the Jews, five times I received forty stripes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I've spent in the deep. In journeys often, in perils of water, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils of the Gentiles, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils in the false brethren, in weariness and in toil, in sleeplessness often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and weakness. Besides other these things, there came upon me my deep concern for all the churches. You know, do you ever wonder if Paul kind of sat on the curb one day and wondered, is my life fulfilled? Somehow, I I don't think Paul wasted a second about having a fulfilled life. Gang, in addition to Paul, you will find that most of God's favorites 
underwent severe tests of faith. Abraham. Abraham, as you know, was called the friend of God. (laughs) For heaven's sakes. He spent most of his life waiting on God to fulfill his promises to him. And then when he finally fulfilled the promise, he was told to go to a mountain and sacrifice him. That's, of course, after he dealt with his wife, who was mad at him because Ishmael was still around. And then, then there's the Virgin Mary. <laughs> the Virgin Mary, the, the highly favored one, says the New Testament. Soren Kierkegaard wrote a book called In Fear and in Trembling. And there's a section of it that he dedicates to the Virgin Mary. And he talks about Mary's anxiety and distress and the, the, the paradox that marked Mary's life. And then he says, and, and, and may I quote, he says, um, Has any woman been as infringed upon as was Mary? And is it not true here also that the one whom God blesses, he curses in the same breath? Oh, most highly favored one. (laughs) You know, you you read the Psalms. Have you ever read those things? You know, uh, maybe I've said this to you before, but if the, um, if the, uh, if, if our enemies ever take over our country and send me to jail, and I can only take one book of the Bible with me, I know which book I'm taking. I'm not taking Romans. I'm taking the book of Psalms because the book of Psalms, if you read it, about one third of it is written by men, righteous guys. I mean, stalwarts in the faith. And they are wrestling with what, 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 we, what we would call today a prosperity theology. Why is it, for heaven's sakes, that the wicked seem to get off so scot-free and I suffer so much? Why is that? You see it all through the Psalms, ladies and gentlemen. And those were the heroes of Israel. You know, one of my, one of my favorite mental pictures. H- have any of you, um, I was asked just this week, are, are we ever going to go back to Israel? I'm not sure. <laughs> I'm not sure Israel is, is going to still be there. But uh, one of the things that happened to us while we were in Israel, a group of us went to Israel in 98, I think, 97, 98, is that we enjoy this, this Passover meal, the Seder. I don't know whether you remember it, but there's a portion in it, in the Seder, in the Passover meal, where the Jews take a stalk of parsley. And they dip a stalk of parsley in salt water. And as they do, they say these words, Life is immersed in tears. You know, um, my hero, or one of my heroes, is a guy by the name of C.S. Lewis. And C.S. Lewis wrote this about us. This is really good stuff. I wish I was as smart. C.S. Lewis says, We want not so much a father in heaven as a grandfather in heaven, whose plan for the universe was simply that it might be truly said at the end of each day, a good time was had by all. I should very much like to live in a universe which was governed on such lines. But since it is abundantly clear that I do not, and since I have reason to believe, nevertheless, that God is love, I conclude that my conception of love needs correction. The problem of reconciling human suffering with the existence of a God who loves is only insoluble 
So long as we attach a trivial meaning to the word love and look on those things as, as if man were the center of them. Man is not the center. God does not exist for the sake of man. Man does not exist for his own sake. We were made not primarily that we may love God, though we were made for that too, but that God would love us. You know, by and large, ladies and gentlemen, we live in a society that is healthier. We live longer. We have less physical pain than any culture in history. And yet, if you read very widely, our authors, our artists, our playwrights, our philosophers, our, our theologians stumble all over themselves in search of new ways to rephrase the ancient questions of the book of Job. And that is, why does God allow so much suffering? Why doesn't he intervene? And very interesting, ladies and gentlemen, all of those anguished cries don't normally come from the third world where misery abounds. No, no. Those cries come primarily from those of us who live in the comfortable narcissistic West. Helmut Tillich said that American Christians have an inadequate theology of suffering, and indeed we do. I read a story about an American Christian who was in a conversation with a Chinese Christian and the American Christian said to the Chinese Christian, you know, he said, I've always wondered if God loves the Chinese people, why he lets them suffer so. The Chinese Christian replied, you know, I've always wondered if God loves the American people, why doesn't he let them suffer? And coming to Jesus Christ was never to be viewed as some kind of panacea for all of our problems. For some, Jesus is a shortcut to problem solving. Jesus is the answer. Well, it depends on what you mean by that. He's the answer to what? Unemployment? Um, a crumbling marriage? An amputated leg? A bad complexion? Or all of the above? God, God's definition of of things going well, gang, is, is unique, it's distinct, it's almost eccentric. His, his, his definition of wellness is not about health and finances and job security. It, it, it's not about some kind of unfailing protection against all of the vagaries and the dangers of living in a fallen and broken world. And it's not about life being fair. Being in the hand of God is not synonymous with or a guarantee for, for some kind of economically prosperous, physically healthy, uh, protected from pain existence. Gang, being in the hand of God doesn't promise us some kind of trouble-free occupation and having everyone being happy with us and appreciate us and like us. Gang, our, our, our Christians... Are we meant to be uh, happy all the time? Uh, is, is a child of God meant to know pure joy and, and the, uh, the removal of all that might 
make for some kind of painful existence? If that's true, then what God should have done is just kill us all when we, came, when we became Christians. Gang, if, if, there's, if you could summarize what I'm trying to say to you this morning, it's simply this. And, you know, really, I said this is my best shot at making summertime enjoyable. And I'm telling you, that's the truth. Here's my best shot. If you want to summarize what I want to say this morning, it's this. Affliction, difficulty, trial, pain is a normal part of every Christian's experience. I know that what we brought into adulthood is this notion that we were going to somehow escape and live an idyllic undisturbed life and that is our desire but ladies and gentlemen we were that's just a wrong assumption and and you and I ought not be surprised or ashamed when our work or our family or our church or our kids end up producing for us some kind of painful scenario. No one, ladies and gentlemen, no matter how mature you get as a Christian, no matter how many Bible studies you attend and how many verses you memorize, no one ever arises to this plateau, this, this, uh, this level of spiritual maturity where they are now immune to difficulty. It never arrives, ladies and gentlemen, so don't look for it. Um, I'll say this. It seems that some people get more than their share. But no one, no one is passed over. None of us, ladies and gentlemen. There, I guess you could summarize at least my first point by saying there are no chairlifts in the steep sections, ladies and gentlemen. There is uh, no McDonald's at the trailhead. Most of life's trails go straight uphill. Now, my second assumption, I I will make it far more briefly, or or at least will attempt to, um, because we're going to, I'm going to cover I'm going to cover this really later on in the series with more depth and with more more time. But the second thing is this idea that if I do my part, that I can expect God to do his part. And his part is to rid me of all of these little pesky mosquitoes and spiders that seem to be all over my trail of life. Um, gang, one of the reasons that I wanted to bring this up now is because uh, it, this false assumption really is dangerous, particularly to new believers. 
Not, not only to new believers, but often to new believers. It's a, it's a real difficulty for them who've come to know Christ early on and get freaked out. I mean freaked out because something has happened that was very difficult and very much unexpected. Because they were thinking that that kind of stuff doesn't happen unless, of course, they did something wrong. Um, and the assumption is that if anything bad has happened, that it's because there's some button that I didn't push or, or I'm not, uh, I'm not doing my daily Christian to-do list the way I was supposed to. Because if I'm, if I'm punching all the right buttons and doing all the right things that Christians are supposed to do, that God will see to it that all will be well. And I'm telling you, ladies and gentlemen, for at least for, at least for our young Christians or perhaps even immature Christians, that's, a, that's a, a hard thing to wrestle with. Because somebody gave me the notion that there were just a certain few rules that I needed to follow. And if I followed them well, everything would be smooth sailing. And besides, isn't that why I became a Christian in the first place? I mean, my other life as a non-Christian was a shambles. And so Christianity offers the opposite of all that. Doesn't it? Oh, somebody please tell me that it does. I thought when I came to know Christ that all of that was going to never happen again. Now, guys, certainly, I, don't misunderstand me. When I come to know Christ, things change. Yes. They change radically. They change drastically. But when I became a Christian, I did not get drained of all of those juices that got me in trouble in the first place. In fact, I've entered into a battle that is far fiercer now. Because I've got a flesh that still lives and now a new principle that battles within. But those who have found some or heard some kind of notion that everything was to level out and just be smooth sailing. And, and something strikes them that is painful. Then they, then they panic and, and, and feverishly begin to push all the buttons, you know. They, uh, they, they pray in faith and they, they confess every known sin and they, they claim the promises and they plead the blood and they rebuke the devil and they thank God for all of his blessings. And then they sit back and wait. Because now that I've punched all the buttons, Everything is going to level out for me. I've done everything that I was required to do. And so, God, I'm waiting. I'm waiting for you to come through. And all of that, you see, ladies and gentlemen, is based on an assumption. The assumption is that as a Christian, nothing should go wrong in my life. Well, that's a cruel assumption. And I'm telling you, whoever gave it to you, really did you a vast disservice. I'm trying to help you enjoy the summertime by telling you that wasn't the truth. Gang, I'm here to tell you that when you became a Christian, life didn't get easier or simpler. 
it became more complex. Now, did it become more meaningful? Absolutely. Did it become richer? Yes, yes. Did it become perhaps uh, more full of direction and purpose? Yes, 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 all of those things. But I'm telling you, there is now with, with the Christian a God factor that complicates a lot of things. If I'm not fulfilled as a non-Christian, I know some things that I can do to at least uh, fix that. But as a Christian, I now have the truth of God floating around in my head. And life is more complex as a Christian than as a non-Christian. You know, guys, I won't even tell you the story again because I've told it so often. But I'm telling you, as a non-Christian, self-assurance, cocky arrogance is something that gets applauded. When you become a Christian, that self, same self-assurance, cocky attitude, that is an anathema. Life gets more complicated as I seek to live out a life that is honorable to God. Gang, I can tell you this. God is going to deliver us. I can't tell you when, and I can't tell you how. But I can tell you. And you can go to the bank on it, ladies and gentlemen. He's going to deliver us. So, so all that is going on in our lives is designed to make transformed people of faith. It is not designed to make people comfortable and giddy. It is designed to make you into the image of Jesus Christ. And that, my friends, is a good thing. I read where someone, in the midst of this discussion, their reply was, well, then why be a Christian at all? Wouldn't it be better if we just remained outside of the battle completely? And I have to tell you, ladies and gentlemen, that's an option. That's an option for you. But I want you to remember this fact. That Christianity was never designed to be something to give you things. Whether that thing was healing or food or happiness or job security. Christianity, the teaching of the Bible, the the whole word of God, ladies and gentlemen, is true. That means that all the promises of present comfort and all the promises about some kind of future return of Jesus Christ and all that will follow that, all of that is true. We're, we were, when we became Christians, we weren't given some kind of painkiller. We weren't given a bit of occupational therapy or a club to join so that we would have more friends and, or some kind of insurance policy in case some bad thing happened to us. What we were given is the truth. That's what we have, ladies and gentlemen. The truth. 
I believe in Christianity for the same reasons I believe in the multiplication tables. Because it's the truth. And so all that it promises me is going to come true. How? I can't say. When? I don't know. I can even either remain in the posture of truth and trust the God who said it. Or I can continue to live in a context of lies. That's the choice that every non-Christian faces. It's the choice that so many of us faced and we chose to be Christians. Just understand that when you did, what you got is not a painkiller. What you got is the truth. Our Father, I do thank you that you did give us so much truth. And for many of us who lived in context of nothing but lies, it's, it's a delight to, be, to discover that we finally stand on something solid underneath us. That we finally stand on something that's not going to shake and shatter with the vicissitudes of a, of a godless world. But Father, as, as we face whatever it is that we're facing, I pray that you will assure us that what you're up to is good. That what you're up to is making us into the image of Jesus Christ. As painful as that may be at this moment, what you're doing is making us into something that will be eternally, everlastingly beautiful. And that you will use us as new, transformed creatures in Christ to prove in the heavenlies that men and women can be transformed by the grace of God. That's what's happened to us, O oh God. And for many of us, even this very day, we experience the, uh, the, dis- the uncomfortable side of being remade. Give us grace. Give us the grace, O oh God, to persevere. Thank you for um, the privilege that is mine to try and explain all over again the great beauties of this thing that we call Christianity. But at its essence is the truth of the living God. We pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.